Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 136 of the Speaking Club podcast. Well, today I want to start the show with a joke from the wonderful Lynn Ruth Miller. This is when she appeared on Britain's Got Talent. Enjoy. You've given me two minutes up here because you think that's all the time I've got left. (laughs) I can hardly blame you. I've had so many body replacements that when I go through airport security, it sounds like I just hit the jackpot in Vegas. (laughs) But I love going through airport security now because they explore your sensitive areas. And my two husbands couldn't find them. So I was at Ben and Jerry's and I ordered a hot fudge sundae with extra fudge, extra whipped cream, and extra nuts. And the girl said, you forgot the cherry. I said, I lost that years ago. Now I'm into nuts. (laughs) She said, if you eat that, it's going to go right to your hips. I said, they're brand new. They can take it. I started this podcast for two reasons because I want to help people recognize the power of stories and humor in speaking, and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organizations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey, I hope you're well. And thank you for joining me again on The Speaking Club. Well, my guest today, Lynn Ruth Miller, she is a character and she's had quite a tumultuous life. As you heard there, she's had two husbands. She survived a very challenging childhood numerous personal disappointments and many near-death experiences and now she's 86 and going strong and over the past nine decades she's been a teacher writer and tv presenter but despite three degrees including one in journalism from stanford she never managed to get her dream job as a journalist but in the end she found something better Today, she's the oldest female comedian on both sides of the Atlantic, and she's still making people laugh all over the place. In this show, Lynn is going to share with you the ups and downs of her journey, how she overcame fear to learn to love herself, and she also gives lots of tips for speaking, humour, and storytelling, including how you should relate to your audience so that your talks have greater impact. She is quite a character, as I've said, and I'm sure you're going to love this show. Before I switch over to the interview, though, I just wanted to let you know about the live online workshop I'm running in just a couple of weeks. I'll be sharing the three-step formula for selling when you speak. This is for you if you're a heart-centered coach, author, expert, or online entrepreneur, and you're struggling to get the results that you want because your voice and your message are just not connecting with or engaging your audience in the way that you want. Now, I'm going to take you through the ABC of creating powerful, authentic talks that sell without selling on stage or online in webinars and podcasts. And I'll be giving away my heart map blueprint at the workshop too. So if you want to go from struggling to stand out to connecting and converting with confidence, then grab your space at saraharcher.co.uk slash 
masterclass. That's saraharcher.co.uk slash masterclass. And there's a link in the show notes too. I look forward to seeing you there. Right then, let's head over to my interview with the wonderful Lynn Ruth Miller. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Lynn Ruth Miller. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. This is wonderful. wonderful. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm very chuffed to have you on the show. So I've told the audience a little bit about you, but first question, prior to starting comedy, you had been speaking throughout your life as a teacher and you were also a TV presenter. Did that make taking that first comedy class a little bit scary? I was not scared of anything that the rest of the, the well, of course, remember the, the, the children in the comedy class are from 18 to 23, uh, but I was not frightened of any of that. I had spoken before large groups. I had the two TV shows, which were public access, and I used to think nobody ever watched it. And then right before I left Pacifica, some guy came up and said, oh, you're the TV lady, because of course I had, you know, every week they saw me twice. And I thought, oh, somebody watched me. Um, but that wasn't what bothered me. What bothered me was I had led a fairly isolated life. And, um, and now I was trying to relate to strangers. There's a, a man that does comedy uh, who has a stroke and he hasn't done comedy in a while. But he said, the art of comedy is getting the idea that you've got here into a perfect stranger's head. It's one thing to make your mom laugh and your partner laugh. They know you. I mean, I have a friend, Andrea, and we laugh at so much. It really isn't funny, but because we, we know each other, and we know how ridiculous we both are. But um, uh, to make a stranger laugh. And I was thinking, I don't know this culture. I am 70 years old. I have, uh, at that time, three dogs and, and, and three cats. Uh, and I walk them, and I interview people for magazines and newspapers. I don't have a friend friend. Yeah. And by the way, that changed. Uh, I have a couple friend friends and an awful lot of pretty good friends that I can, uh, that I can talk to who talk to me, uh, whereas then I didn't. So, so, so that was the scary thing. Do you think that was no, the- when you got there... You were, you, did you find it was okay? The isolation wasn't I an issue? Remember, I interview people. Yeah. So I'm very, um, I'm quick. Mm. You say something and I come up with some crazy remark. So, I mean, the first thing that Curtis said to me is, I can't teach you anything. And I was not aware that I had said anything funny, but I'm sure I did. I said something like, you know, um, everybody better speak loud because I can't. You know, I have no idea what I said. I'm sure I said some crazy thing. And it was the way they adopted me. I've never really thought about this, but I have to say they accepted me immediately. We went out for coffee. I had never gone to a restaurant. Never. Because I was still fighting the eating disorder. I had had it under control in that I wasn't starving when stuffing myself, but I still had a huge issue with food. And so I was really afraid to go out where I couldn't control how it was cooked and the size of the portion. And then they said, let's go out for coffee. And, and, and my first thought was, well, I've had my coffee. <laughs> and then I thought, you know, you could have a second cup of coffee. It's not going to kill you. And, and that was what happened. And that's how we started. And it was when I was 72 that I started drinking. Oh, my word. 
And I thought, ooh, this stuff is good. I never drank anything after college because I had the eating disorder and an eating disorder is control. And I didn't want to be out of control. Oh, Although so I nice. certainly was when he proposed and I said yes. But the point was, I didn't think so. <laughs> but we've been talking before this. I'm a fool for any kind of love. <laughs> yes, I love you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, you're brilliant. Then. So well, let's just backtrack a little bit. So can you share how and why you got started doing stand-up at 70? I have always wanted to get a job in a newspaper. I, I never got a job in a newspaper. They let me do freelance writing. And this is, I mean, I graduated from Stanford with my journalist degree when I was 31. And I never stopped trying to get this. So I'm now 70 and I'm promoting my novel yeah. and my two short story books. And uh, after the, after this, this, nobody ever bought them, these, these things. I would go to all these Jewish organizations. They never bought them. But then at the end, they wrote a book. They would, I would tell them the kind of jokes that in my day you used to talk after when you met people, when you, were, you used to tell these jokes. And I really know a lot of them. And, I can, and, and they're all in here. And you say something and I'll think of a joke. And so I was telling them jokes. So they would invite me back and I would say to do more reading. And they would say, no, no, we want more jokes. So I was running out of jokes. At that time, you could surf the net. And I saw this thing that said San Francisco Comedy College. Now, you have to understand, I haven't had a television set since, uh, since 1980. So I didn't know that stand-up comedy was a career. No idea. This was really, it was just, it made perfect sense, this thing. He was going to prepare them for this career. But I thought, you can't teach someone to be funny. And if I write a story about that, I might get in, well, I figured first the San Francisco Chronicle, but then the New York Times will pick it up. They have to. What a great thing. This man is exploiting young people. I'm going to get him. <laughs> and I walked in there and had the best time of my life. And these, these, these um, comedy clubs were in, um, they were in the Tenderloin. Do you know anything about the Tenderloin in San Francisco? No. Well, you don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most dangerous area of the city. I've had so many things happen previous in my life that things don't, I'm not afraid of things. I'm not sure how much of it, I don't remember how much I stuck in the book, but I've been told that I was going to die a couple of times by people that actually knew what they were talking about. And so, and then I was alone in all kinds of places where if I didn't go out at night alone, I wouldn't go out. I wouldn't be able to get to where I was supposed to go. Uh, so I am not afraid of things like, of somebody hitting me on the head or um, not being able to see. I would go out, remember San Francisco had terrible fog and I would drive on it. I would go there. People would stay home. They wouldn't drive it. Not me. I, I can do it. I can do it. And I just parked the car and got out and went. Yeah. Gosh. Nobody, so, nobody's going to bother a little old lady. Really, no one is. Because I didn't consider myself a little old lady, but that's what I am. And, and nobody did. So that's what happened. And it opened up, it opened up a world that I could cope with. Mm. It was not demanding that much of me. Mm. I can be funny. That is not what I can't be is truly serious where you're really talking about serious stuff. 
because I'm not used to relating to people, but I can be that surface quipping. Yeah. What happened is then they started telling me their problems. So I started listening. I'm a different person. I'm a, just a totally different person than before I went to that comedy class. Well, that's brilliant. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. How, like, I guess this is more about um, the actual first gig, if you like. But um, obviously, comedy from the, you know we've talked before. Comedy has transformed your life, and it's it's in it's in your book. But how did you feel before and after that first comedy gig? You know, that proper stand up gig. What, what, well, first of all, I was a nervous wreck. I mean, I was shaking like crazy. But I think I've got it in the book, and and it, it the people think it's a joke, but it isn't true. I, but it isn't a joke. It's really true. They're all talking about how great I am. I hadn't heard anything like that for 70 years. Nothing. My husband never told me I was any good. I've never, and the other husband, well, that was a disaster. But (laughs) I never had anyone say to me, oh, my God, you're wonderful. And at Cobb's Comedy Club, I had a couple hundred people come up and say, oh, my God, you're wonderful. And it was mainly because the others were that bad. Nobody. (laughs) So basically, in your book, Getting the Last Laugh, you say, isn't it amazing how popular you become if you can tell a good joke? And that's exactly what I'm telling you. That was, I couldn't believe it. Did you feel invisible before? I was invisible. What do you mean feel? I was. (laughs) Nobody knew my name. I was the dog lady. I lived in that place for 30 years and nobody knew who I was. They knew my dogs. Nobody knew who I was. And I was on television. I used to think, well, just turn on your television so I'm there. And they, they, the people I interviewed knew who I was, but not, not anybody you'd call later and invite for dinner. Mm. They, they knew who I was. I mean, there was a guy named Jay Manley who directed stuff at Foothill. And he still writes me because uh, do you know, um, oh, come on, uh, Madame Arcati, uh, 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 it's a, it's a play by Noel Coward. and um, Oh, yes, Blythe Spirit. That's right, Blythe Spirit. And I want to be Madame Arcati. And he and I have been saying, we'll find, we'll find a vehicle. We'll find one. Because I want to bicycle across the stage. I can do that. <laughs> First, now I need a three-wheel bicycle. But and, uh, they knew me, and they knew me to joke with me. Because, of course, you know, but nobody ever invited me over to their house for dinner or anything like that. I had a Spanish friend who did, and then she did, and she said, my husband can't stand you. <laughs> yeah. I could only have you for lunch. And I thought, well, gee. And then I, and that was before, and I thought, well, I don't like him either. And, and, uh, <laughs> I, and now, and now, um, I'm suddenly, I'm sought after. This woman, Susan Alexander, because there's a lot of ageism and sexism. And remember, I'm trying to do this for nothing. I'm not asking them for money. And, and, and Susan Alexander would book me. And, she, and, and I think it's in the book. She had a green room. And when we did, I was doing, I was doing comedy at bars where, I mean, they were just so seamy. They were just disgusting. I mean, in filthy places where you wouldn't go to the loo because you'd think, oh, God, no, I'll, I'll get a disease. And all of a sudden, I walk in, and there's, there's, a, there's wine, and there's, there's candy, and, and Susan, Susan treated us like we were being paid. And, and she now lives in New York, but I still hear from her. Um, 
she really was my entree because the the show she put on was at 50 Mason, which is in the Tenderloin. Mm -hmm. And it was there that a man named Tony Sparks, whom I adore, came and saw me. And he is Mr. Comedy in San Francisco and never has gotten as far as he should. It is outrageous that he never has. He's a black man from Alabama, and it is absolutely outrageous that that man isn't on television because he's clean, too. I mean, you know, I'm filthy. It's clean. Um, he's, a, he's an exceptional host, exceptional. And when he saw me, he saw something that, of course, I didn't see and, and no one else wanted to see because the truth was, and I hate to have you quote me on this because I don't, I was really a lot better than anyone else there. I was funnier. I was sharper. I was better because most of the comedians had been doing it for a couple of years mm -hmm. and, and were 50 years younger than I am. Uh, and I was, um, I had something to say and I understood, I understood the construction of a joke. Why people don't understand it is something I don't, it's so simple. Mm -hmm. It's set up punch. And if you've gotten there, the rule of three is very simple. We use it for everything. I went to the store. I went to the, uh, I'm going out today. First, I'll go to the store. Then I'll go to my mother's. Then I'll kill myself. You have to, it's, it's, it's three. Uh, the big one is the third one. You just yeah. always, the big one is the third one. So if we go back to that, I've had two husbands. So we're hoping that the big one is coming up. <laughs> yeah. The big one is the third one. It's, that's exactly what we, we, we talked about this on the show before the rule of three because speakers you know it's a great tool for speakers to use in their talks as well so uh you know that's exactly right yeah for speaking because i do speaking mm -hmm. the, the the important thing is to bring it down to a human level yeah you sit and talk with abstract concepts all of them are right and no one's going to give yeah. I do a thing called optimistic aging, and all I do is tell them how I stumbled on one success after another. I, me, and of course, there's a little bit of humor in it, and they love it, and I really haven't told them any. I let them draw the conclusion. Yeah. I, you know, I'll start out by saying everybody's afraid of aging. And then I tell the story of how one day I looked in the mirror and I realized I was a mess and what I did about it, which was, of course, ridiculous. And I have just told them, you don't need to be afraid of aging. But instead of saying you don't need to be afraid of aging, I told them why I'm not. Yeah. I told them. Yeah. That's what I do speaking. And with speaking, you summarize, you start out by telling them what you're going to say. And of course, this is very difficult for me because you've been in conversation with me. I go all over the map. <laughs> what you're going to say, and you end up saying, there, I said it. Yeah. That, that wonderful song by Vaughn Monroe, there, I said it again. Yeah, it's, it's that speaking. Yeah. And I've been doing that since I've been lecturing. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Making, making stuff concrete and relatable and simple and memorable Exactly right. But, but something that's true, something mm. they believe. Mm. Uh, there's a wonderful guy named James Hollis who writes these wonderful books, but he doesn't give examples. Mm. So yes. all these marvelous things he's doing, he's saying, which is marvelous, absolutely marvelous, but, but nobody really gets the impact of it. But when I read it, 
I've had all this happen, so I get it. Yeah. But nobody, I mean, he's very popular, mm. but he wouldn't make me cry. He wouldn't make me cry. My stories make you laugh and cry. Yeah. Or they make me laugh and cry. <laughs> <laughs> so show rather than tell. Absolutely Always. perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Always. You never say, and I teach writing, you never say it's a beautiful day. Because some people love it when it's foggy and misty, and some people love it when it's sunny, and some people can't stand the day at all. They sleep all day. So what you do is describe it. And one person will say, oh, beautiful day. And the other one will say, ah, I'm not going out in that. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. But, but it's hard to do. Yeah, exactly. It is. But the thing is, though, I think one of the things that I'm very keen to, to share with my um, audience on here is around comedy, around storytelling. You know, there is a formula for stuff like just like with comedy you've got the threes formula. Oh, formula yeah and once you get you know i think creativity comes from systems and formulas and stuff you, you know so oh, people true. can do it callbacks are really wonderful so if you're doing a speech and you made a funny and everybody says sorry i'm giving a speech i'll start off with a funny story the funny story has to be about what you're teaching yes especially now i know that there have been upsides and downsides to being older and doing comedy. Can you share some of both? The upside is that I've nothing, nothing can happen to me that hasn't happened before. Nothing. So in terms of being a comedian at your age or when you started off, you know, you started off at 70, a lot of people might have been interested in you, in having you because you were something different, because you were, no, not in San Francisco. Okay, but there, I was going to say, there are some people are interested and some people Tony. it's a problem. Yeah. Tony was. No, that uh, old, old is not accepted. I, I hear it a lot here where they say old is not accepted, but actually it is because in Britain, they love eccentric old people. I've had it, yet they just love it. You just have to be eccentric, which wasn't that difficult for me, but they, you know. I mean, I don't think of myself as eccentric. You need to know that. I don't think of myself as unusual. We talked about this. Yeah. yeah. But to them, that's a very unusual little lady, and she's got a funny accent, too. And, they're, and so they, they're nice. Uh, whereas in America, they don't think that's funny at all. <laughs> so it was very, very difficult. I ran my own shows. I did my own shows because I couldn't. And that was doing it for nothing. I was willing to do it for nothing. But by the... I'm going to say by the 10th year, and that's a long time. Uh, and also because I was noticed in Edinburgh, uh, uh, the festival, I was getting prizes. I began to get $50 gigs. Do you realize how little that is? Mm. Um, and I've been doing this for 16 years. And I am a professional comedian. I am, I'm paid for my work, and I'm considered a professional comedian. And of course, this... It stopped all the earnings that I was going to get mm. because I was going to be going to Dublin and, 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 and Amsterdam and Berlin and Helsinki and Ghent and uh, Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> so the downsides are that you have been, you haven't had the opportunities and we'll talk about and, that. And the big downside is nobody says anything. Only one person said something and she did it by email and, and she runs um, Rooster Tea Feathers. And that is a comedy club that has everybody from Silicon Valley as mm. the audience. That's my audience. Mm. You know, they're the people that went to Stanford. 
They're my audience. And I go there, I went there several times and did free shows. And then I wrote her and I said, so when can I, when? <laughs> the, the internal optimist, when? I knew that this was ridiculous. Like, when can you feature me? That means I get money. And she wrote back and she said, we don't want you. I, I'll never forget this. We don't want you at Rooster Teeth Feathers. Please stop emailing me. And I had only sent her the one. Mm-hmm. And but, you'd say, well, was it because she couldn't tell a joke? That's sort of hard when I really told a lot of good jokes. Yeah. It's what other reason? Was it because I'm a woman? Not necessarily. She's a woman. It was because I was old. And nice. that was one email. If they would do it for some of these places, I've sent like thousands of emails saying, I'm here, I'm here. You know, and they're saying, we know. Um, but this was, but she was the only one, and I have to say this, that had the courage to just say, we don't want old people here. And you say, oh, that's terrible. But I'm saying, you have a right when you're running a show to cast the people you want in a show. They, she didn't want old people. Boom, that's it. Mm-hmm. And I was, as a matter of fact, I was the old people. <laughs> because the, the nearest to me was a guy who was 50. His name was Ken Cosella, and he was funny too. But she booked him. She wouldn't book me. There's a wonderful story that I'd like to share so that I can get rid of this practice. I don't like gong shows. I don't mm-hmm. like them. No, I don't like them. What they do is they give the audience atavistic power that they are not equipped to handle. And I was, they talked me into going into the gong show. I didn't want to do it. And I, when I was there, I saw this young boy. Now understand, young boy could have been 50. But to me, he was a young boy in a suit and tie. And comedians don't, they were just anything. He was all dressed up. And you only get, I think it's seven minutes. And he's sitting there writing and crossing out and writing and crossing out. And I'm watching him. This is, means a lot to him. He goes up on stage, and because he was wearing a suit and tie, he got the first gong. He opened up his mouth, and because he sounded a little bit not too masculine, got the second gong. He barely said anything, and he got the third gong. Never did a joke, and that destroyed him. I can, I've never seen him again on the comedy circuit. Mm-hmm. I was so angry. I wrote the woman, I wrote the woman that booked me. How can you work for that? How can you work for that organization? He never, we never heard his joke. And, so, and, and, and a bunch of sitting out there said, you're a failure because I don't like the way you look. Mm. Yeah, no, I've, I've seen it myself. At the, yeah, at the comedy store, it was, I think, I, I think in, in my case, I was like, there were like 34 comedians turned up to do this gig and some people been traveled from all over the country and I think I got on I was the 17th comic on and the compere said oh here's something we haven't had tonight a woman a woman and, oh, then, and oh. then they all started booing before I even got to the stage and I was like oh you know so it's uh, I, I'm, I'm with you on that one but but for you comedy is also opened like you've been all over the world haven't you you've talked like book me here but wait, tell me some of the places that you've been, and you've been on you've been on talent started out, shows. Started out in Dublin. It started out in Dublin, and I knew a guy named Aidan Killian, and he was lovely, and he gave me my first gig there, and then I ended up at the International, which is my favorite place of any place ever to do comedy, and that's with Aidan Bishop, and I love him to pieces, 
And I want everyone to know that Aiden Bishop is the best thing that God has created. I absolutely love him. He doesn't see race. He doesn't see color. He doesn't see woman. I bet when he does see women, he's a little hot. <laughs> he's a hot firecracker. But for comedy, he doesn't see anything. You want to get up there, he gives you a chance. You get a laugh, he books you again. Just like that. Nobody in the comedy industry is like that. Dan Dockery is in Vietnam, but not very many. And so anyway, so I was doing that. And then whenever I go to Dublin, I have a list of Dublin, Irish people. And I send a thing that says, I'm coming to Dublin. And one of the people that I send it to was Aiden, whom I know. And he said, oh, I'm in Bangkok. I said, what are you doing in Bangkok? He said, well, I'm doing comedy. I said, well, I would love to do that. He said, well, I'll give you a name. And that's how it started. Fantastic. But you're all over the place, aren't you? Lousy at geography. People who do this usually have a, an agent. So they, uh, they say, well, you go to this one, then you go to this one, then you go to this one. I'm going to this one, then I'm flying over here, then I'm going over there, then I'm flying. Because I don't know where it is. All over the place. I ended up in China. I was in Beijing, mm. <laughs> Shanghai. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And in uh, overseas comedy, uh, it isn't easy to get someone who'll pay their way to Vietnam for, for 50, 50 pounds. Mm. Which is, I'm lucky if I get that much. You get a hotel. You get a hotel. Um, Gosh. But I'm willing to do it. I have a pension. I don't make money on any of these. I don't make money. So you're, you're paying for your flights to, yes, to go there? Yes, for my flight. Oh, I had one. So I, I, I know, and I didn't get it. It was because of the pandemic. I was going to go to Galway, and he said, yes, we'll pay for your flight, and we'll pay for it. what's the matter with you? <laughs> Nobody ever does that. Gosh. You know, so, so always you get from me, are you sure? Because <laughs> I can't. And, of course, it's the way it's done, but never has been with me, so I... I see what I want, and I go after it. There's nobody, Sarah, that can make you happy except you. And nobody knows what you want in life except you. Yeah. yeah. Nobody knows. They can guess. You know. Yeah. Well, then. Gosh. Well, that leads me into my next question. So in the book, you said that you wallowed in fear until oh. you were in your 50s and that you learned to ignore the doubts that stopped you. How did you do that? Um, I believe that when I was in my 50s, I managed to buy a house. And I believe that story is in there. It was a miracle. Believe me, it was a miracle. I've always lived below the poverty level, managed to buy a house. And once I got into that house, I was always haunted wherever I lived, by the fear that they would throw me out. And they did. And it wasn't because I did anything. It was because my brother's coming from Mexico. My, I've got to hide. Some, I'm raising the rent. And, and when they double the rent, I can't pay it. Mm. I just, it isn't there. And, and uh, so that always just terrified me. And I had it happen so many times. And then in Redwood City, when the guy's brother was coming from Mexico... He hired someone to beat me up to get me out of the house. What? Yeah. He did a good job of beating me up. I was a mess. Um, but um, I didn't get out of the house, though. <laughs> 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 I was there another, I think, six months, eight months. 
<laughs> because I had to find a place to live and I couldn't find it. But that's it. Yeah, I didn't. Beat me to a pulp. I was a, yeah. <laughs> um, but um, so I was always afraid. And when I got that house, partially because I didn't really understand that Wells Fargo could throw me out. And they did. That's how I ended up in Brighton. Mm. They did throw me out. 2008 thing. Um, they tripled my mortgage. They tripled my mortgage. I couldn't pay it. But up until that time, I didn't get in my head that, uh, that that bank had the power to throw me out. Mm. So I thought nobody can throw me out of my house. And, and I will never forget sitting in that house and always I could be so easily intimidated because I had a mother that screamed at me and I always was so easily intimidated. And this woman came in and she was angry at me about something and started screaming and I can still remember, I can remember where I was sitting, where she was standing. And I said to her, this is my house. You don't talk to me this way. And I reached for the phone, which in those days was attached to the wall, to call the police. And she left. I thought, oh, I did it. I was like that. I still am to this day, but I never was before. You raise your voice to me, I'm done. I'm yeah. gone. So having that house kind of gave you the security. Oh, it changed everything. The house and then comedy. The house was the step in finding myself. Mm -hmm. Comedy was the step in allowing myself to enjoy life. Cool. I hadn't really thought about that, but that was what it was. The house said, you are a person with rights. And that was how I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. uh, the Starving Hearts was that one. And um, got the television show. I was a person. I wasn't a victim. Okay, so one of the things that I think applies equally to stand-up and public speaking is that to be successful, you need to find your authentic voice and persona. Would you agree? And have you found yours? Well, the truth is I found my voice when I was lecturing. Okay, cool. I knew my voice. I was, I was a, a lecturer that told Joe's story. What was hardest about comedy is when I began, I couldn't do stories because I'm a storyteller. Mm. It's how I lectured. It's how I'm a storyteller. Um, I do it now. When you tell me something, I tell you a story about what happened. <laughs> yes. I'm a storyteller. Um, but now, because of the pandemic, I'm back to storytelling again. And if you want to see how I've combined storytelling with uh, comedy, I just did a Facebook Live thing called, uh, it's called Lynn McMiller at Home, and then it's, it's a Lockdown Blues and Other Problems or something like that. It's on Facebook. And I open with a story and I end with a story. And the other thing I happen to love to do is sing. And I'm a, a terrible singer, but I love to sing. <laughs> And, and, uh, and in that one, I let you know how disgusting my singing voice is, and I sing. I sing. Excellent. Well, I'll put a link in the show notes to that Facebook Live so people can go and check and it out. Find it. Can you find it? It's on my Facebook page. Cool. And it's also my group, which is called Lynn Ruth Miller at Home. Okay, well, I'll put a link to that. You kind of, before you started doing comedy, you, you had your voice and your persona. I, I get the feeling that, you are like what you see is what you get now. Yeah, that's it. That's the other thing. Uh, my friend, Sarah Louise, whom I absolutely adore and is wonderful. She does cabaret, always does a character. Mm. 
I'm exactly who you see. I've been in, uh, to my surprise, I've been in three feature-length movies. You know, someone says, we'll, we'll film you. I say, yeah, okay. And, 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 uh, but the parts I play are an old woman. You know, I'm myself. Yeah. I was in Moon Over Buffalo, and I paid, a, I paid an irascible, deaf, old woman. Well, hello. Uh, so it was easy. So everyone says, oh, my God, you're living the part. I said, yes, I am living the part. I'm it. <laughs> what do you mean living the part? When I leave here, I'm still the part. I'm it. <laughs> public speaking, the most important thing with public speaking is to love your audience. Mm, I agree. They want to hear. I tell that to comedians. Mm. Comedians say, no, it's a bad audience. Those people went to comedy because they want to laugh. Yeah, absolutely. Those people come to your speech because they want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Okay. Now, I know we're talking about the audience. I know that you spend time before your gigs scoping out the audience. What sort of things are you looking for? Comedy can be very not woke. Uh, and I want to see how conservative the audience is. I'm watching which jokes work and which jokes fail from the other comedians. And if, if every one of their risque or marginally incorrect, politically incorrect jokes fail, I then try to keep that out of my set. Mm. I watch I owe the audience. And by the way, that's for public speaking too. Mm. When people come to hear you, they've given money and time or just time. Time is, is money. Yes. You owe them. Yeah, I agree. Whenever anyone gets off the stage, it's bad audience. You think, no, nope, bad set, <laughs> bad audience. And with comedy, you're one up because they came there to laugh. Mm. We want to laugh. Okay. I love uh, those. I love that. And I think as a speaker, you should be checking your audience out too. When I did uh, a speech for the National Health Service retirees, it was the same essential points, but I cut out an awful lot that I didn't, that I put in for the Women's Institute. Mm-hmm. The Women's Institute, these were people that weren't retired. They were living, some of them had kids in school. You get in something they can relate to, not just the proper cup to put your teeth in when you go to bed at night. (laughs) (laughs) Try to get them something they can relate to, too. And um, scope the audience. It's important, Mm. I think. I think you're, you're absolutely right with all of that stuff. Now, I know, and you've mentioned this, and we've also heard evidence of it, that you're a brilliant storyteller. In fact, You've had award-winning storytelling shows. And again, one of the big things that we talk about on this show is stories, because I believe they're the secret weapon uh, of speaking. Um, and, and I'm hoping, you know, we've already maybe shared a few tips, but if you could share a few tips to help uh, people with their storytelling in, in speaking. When you tell a story, <laughs> can you share a few tips three hours later? All right, I think... <laughs> Let's say three. Let's say three. Just a tip. (laughs) Um, My stories are true. Um, And my stories, unlike my comedy, which I'm not happy about in my comedy, do not victimize anyone. And my stories are always about everyday 
things pull from common experience. Yeah. I do a thing about the tooth fairy, and I was doing it to a, a, a group of families. So I turned to this little boy, and I said, so the tooth fairy says, what do you do when you lose a tooth? <laughs> and he said, I go to the dentist. <laughs> Jesus, is not going to work. Because <laughs> so I wanted to tell about the tooth fairy that you put the tooth under the pillow. Uh, and, and you make your stories real. But don't make the mistake of veering from the point you want to make. Mm. Make sure the story makes the point. Yes, absolutely. Brilliant. Thank you. Now, I mentioned your book, Getting the Last Laugh, at the start of the show. And I've got it, as you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying reading it. And I hoped you would share why you wrote it and why people should get it. Well, I'm hoping it's a good read. I'm hoping that's what it um, I wrote it because a friend of mine from New York introduced me to a PR lady that, that sells books. She, she's a PR lady that sells to publishers. And I have 11 novels. So I thought, oh, maybe I can get one of my novels published. And she said to me, no, I'd rather have your life story. So she said, write me a summary of your life. So I'm 85. So seven volumes later. <laughs> so when you go to Getting the Last Laugh, it's going to have a picture of me in a feather boa. But that book is unedited. And you don't want that book. And it's also ridiculously expensive. Mine is $12.99. And the Kindle, I think, is seven or eight. So we'll put the link to the one where, where you get... The last laugh. Yeah. And it's me on the cover with an Irish dog. And why you should read it is if you're interested in starting a career, um, not necessarily because you're older, but, but different from what you've been doing, this pretty much tells you how I did it. And hopefully you can extrapolate from that. Because I did it without money. I did it without an agent. I did it without family. And family, I am convinced. I mean, like my friend who was in her 80s had her first art exhibit. And she had 12 kids. So when I went to her art exhibit, the place was filled with the, her kids and their, and their husbands and their wives and the children. And she said, oh, I sold out. Well, I haven't had any children and my dogs are dead. So it's, and so we have, and I know you must know about this, bringer shows. You can't, oh, yeah. I have no one to bring. What am I supposed to do? Dig them up? Yeah, this is, this is just for, for anyone listening to know. So when you're starting out in, well, it doesn't even just starting out, but comedy is, is hard, which is one of the reasons I don't do it anymore because I would schlep around the country till two o'clock in the morning and you would have to bring someone with you to... Yeah, yeah. No, I can't. I mean, I remember in San Francisco where uh, I was supposed to bring people. I said, well, the, the Colma, Colma is the city where everybody is buried. It's, it's, San Francisco does not allow graveyards. It's Colma. So my friend said, well, yeah, you got to bring someone. I said, what do you want me to do? Go to Colma? Dig them up. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is that comedy is not the easy thing that people think it is. Yeah. It's, um, you gotta love it. But the truth is, Sarah, nothing is the easy thing you think it is. No, it's true. You've got to love what you're doing. You just Absolutely. Love it. And if you don't, for God's sake, stop. Mm. Everybody says, no, no, I can't do without the money. Well, I've done without the money for years. I'm fine. <laughs> Yeah. 
But uh, just just to finish up on your book, so I can say it's a very good read. Lynn has had an eventful life. There are, besides learning how to start comedy, there are some extremely valuable life lessons in there. Uh, wonderful stories, definitely worth getting. Well, I'll put a link in the in the show notes. So thank you for sharing all of that stuff. My pleasure. Now, before I let you go, I just have a, a few standard questions I ask all my guests. Um, what's and, it, and because this is the speaking show, what's the best thing speaking has done for you? It's made me realize we're all in the same boat. Interesting. Yeah, we're all in the same boat. We have the same fears. We do. And I mean, everybody wants to know that someone else has been through the same hell that you've been through. Mm. Everyone wants to know that someone else has faced the same challenge you're telling them about. The most important thing with speaking is to relate to that audience. It's the most important thing. They're there because they want to hear what you said you're going to talk about. So for God's sake, talk about it. How many times have you heard that? Yes, I'm going to tell you about the Cold War. And then they get up and tell you about Russia, Russian black bread or something. No. Talk about it, exactly. Now, have you had, and this, you know, for speaking particularly, is, has there been a, a speaking gig that you've done or where you've been speaking where it didn't go to plan and you were like, oh, my God, that was awful. Has that happened to you? Yeah, twice. Can you share one of them? Yeah. Well, the one was I had just started doing burlesque. <laughs> And I sing a song by Johnny Mercer that's called The Strip Polka, which is a a spoof about burlesque. The best line in it is they're talking about Queenie. And they say, take her out when it's over. She's a peach when she's dressed. I love that line. Mm -hmm. And it's a jokey song. But I had never really done this. And I was doing it for a group of PhD students from, uh, from Stanford, all men. And she didn't. She had a mic stand, but, but you, were, you take the mic off. The mic had a, a cord, and I'm trying to take off my clothes and sing this song, and I got completely tangled up in the mic. And I, and nobody, I mean, I was just, I, was, I, I felt like I was being trussed for slaughter or something, that the next thing I'm going to do is say, all right, there's the abattoir over there. And nobody laughed. As a matter of fact, nobody paid any attention to me at all. I was just up there. They were eating and talking, and, and I was just up there throwing this microphone around trying to get out of my bathrobe. It was just a mess. And the other one was a Bella Ricky in Essex right. in a golf club. And I was supposed to do 50 minutes. And I don't believe there was a sound except my voice for 50 minutes. And afterwards, this woman came up to me and she said, oh, she said, you were wonderful. I said, well, I wish you would have awakened the people at your table. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Thank you for sharing those. <laughs> well, well, afterwards, you know, afterwards you say, yeah, I'm quitting this. I'm never doing this again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you carry on. <laughs> okay. What's the one book you've read that's had most impact on your life and why? You know, it's hard to say. Why? But it's Cry the Beloved Country by Alan Payton. Okay. And it's about, um, I, w- I want to say tolerance, but that's not the word. It's about humanity. It's about apartheid in, in South Africa and the horrible things that happen. Uh, I've read it for the blind. I've read it. I can't read it without crying. Yeah, it's, 
I really believe the profound influence it had is it made me realize we're all human. We're all human. All of us. What is it Shylock says when you, when you cut me, do I not bleed? Which, of course, was his downfall. But yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so beautiful. And it's written by Alan Payton, who was the head of the juvenile court system or the, in, in South Africa. That and, um, we're asking for books. I'm giving you 30. Uh, How Green Is My Valley. Okay. In How Green Is My Valley, they, that's Welsh. They, they, the father takes his son and they hear screaming in the barn. They look through the window and this woman is giving birth alone by herself. And he says, I'm going to cry when I say it. He says to his son, you see that? She's in the barn on the, on the floor. He says, you see that? He said well, to his son, he said, we all can't do it. We all started we all came into this world the same way. Oh, I shall put links to those. <laughs> she, Lynn's crying. You can't see her. I can. She's I'll gone quiet. <laughs> oh, I can. I mean, yeah. That's brilliant. We all came into this world the same way. Okay. Last couple of questions. What's the best piece of business advice you've had and why? Oh, God, I'm so bad at business. The bottom line is not the profit. The bottom line is what it's done for you and, and, your, and your audience, what it's done for you as a human being. That's the bottom line. Okay, cool. I like that. I like that. And then if you could have one mentor, and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Eleanor Roosevelt. Ah, Eleanor Roosevelt was homely, was married to a man who was cheating on her, who was an invalid, who was deified when she knew he wasn't. And she was an inspiration for a country at war. I believe the name of her column was My Day. And she never let any of these things that we would think would defeat her touch her optimism and her belief in humanity. I can get that's a very strong uh, theme coming through the interview. And uh, yeah, it's it's a good, it's a good message for people to take away. Whatever we are, we have a right to be that. Mm. We have a right. And I love the English term. We just have a life, get on with it. (laughs) Cool. Well, listen, Lynn, thank you so much um, for your time and your wisdom. Really appreciate it. And um, where can people find out more about you and the comedy that you're doing? Uh, Where's a good place for them to go? LynnRuthMiller.com. Okay. My website. Uh, Somebody hijacked LynnRuthMiller.net, and it's all about me, but it isn't what I'm doing. I don't know who it is. I keep writing him, but he doesn't answer. LynnRuthMiller.com. Um, I have a Facebook live group. I'd love you to join. It's called Lynn Ruth Miller at Home. And you'll get my next, um, my next show, which I think will be in two weeks. God, I'm all over the internet. <laughs> all over the internet. <laughs> uh, I have a channel, a YouTube channel. Like that. But they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're not that funny, but it's a YouTube channel. And it's Lynn Ruth Miller. I don't know mm-hmm. how you find it. It takes put- forever to find it. I will put a link in the wolf. We'll, we'll give a link to uh, anyone listening in the show notes so that they can find your website and your YouTube channel and your Facebook group. 
um, we'll make sure. And are you on Twitter or Instagram at all? Of course. I got all of it. Yeah, I just did my Instagram thing for today. <laughs> you, you're wonderful, Lynn. Don't ever forget Thank you it. so um, much. <laughs> I and, don't uh, feel it. I don't feel it at all. I feel like, but I am happy. I think that's terribly important. I am happy. Yeah. I finished the Telegraph crossword puzzle. I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you take care and thank you so much again. Thank you. Please keep in touch. Well, there you go. I hope you liked that. I did. Lynn is such, uh, well, she's a joy. And she's absolutely been through the mill in her life and still smiling. And that's brilliant. I've had the absolute pleasure of interviewing Lynn twice now. And if you want to hear more of her life story and how she overcame her struggles, then she'll be coming up as a guest on my Hot Flush Rebels podcast on Apple Podcast or over at hotflushrebels.com. Go and join her Facebook group for more jokes and Lynn's take on the world. And I'm sure she'd love it if you'd say hi. Thank you so much for joining me again. If you enjoy the show, please do take a couple of minutes to leave The Speaking Club a rating and review on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening and subscribe if you're not already. And that's it, really. All that's left for me to say is have a wonderful week. And don't forget to go out and grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. If you're listening to this show because you want to grow your audience and business through speaking, then you made the right choice because this podcast is the vehicle that can help you get there. But I wanted to tell you about something that will get you there even faster. Something that incorporates all the hacks, tools and tips I've picked up from my years in comedy, theatre, marketing and coaching. And that's my live workshop on the three-step formula for selling when you speak. How to go from struggling to stand out and engage to connecting and converting with authenticity and confidence. This is for you if you're a heart-centered author, coach, consultant or online entrepreneur and you feel like you're not able to have the impact and results you want because your voice and message are not reaching or engaging your audience. This free workshop takes you through the ABC of creating powerful, authentic talks that sell without selling. It will help you increase your audience engagement on your webinars, podcasts, workshops, videos, and of course on stage so that you get more sales, subscribers, followers, and speaking opportunities. And it's completely free. But places are limited. If you want to secure yours, then just go to saraharcher.co.uk slash masterclass to pick the time and date that work for you.